morning. Today we're going to be in the uh, book of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. We'll go ahead and read, and then we'll pray. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them. Give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we humbly come before you, God. I humbly come before you. I pray right now for your word to be proclaimed here this morning faithfully and purely. That it be you, Holy Spirit, that speaks. And that it be you, Holy Spirit, that presses upon the hearts and minds of those here this morning your truths. And Father, this morning, I suspect that we will need a little more ounces of your humility, of humility from us, oh God. And I pray right now that as we open this text and we look at your word, that you would speak to us. We are not here just to see each other. We are not here to listen to myself or, or Phil talk. We are here to hear from you, O oh God. So I pray that you would speak to us now. I pray that you would exalt Christ in this moment, that you would edify and equip your people for the furthering of your kingdom, for the proclamation of the gospel. And Lord, I thank you for this undeserved privilege to be up here this morning to proclaim your word. May you use this time. Be glorified. We ask and pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. During the Revolutionary War, the rattlesnake became a prominent symbol and figure for the 13 colonies. Uh, it came to symbolize American ideology and society. Founding father Benjamin Franklin thought and, and, um, that it would be a good symbol to represent the American spirit, even over the bald eagle, which is our national symbol. He liked it because though it was small, it had a lethal bite to it. 
if treaded upon, but always would warn with a rattle. In 1775, American general and politician Christopher Gadsden designed a flag to be flown as a symbol of their, to their British rivals that portrayed a coiled rattlesnake ready to strike with the words underneath, don't tread on me. In recent years, and other renditions of the flag has the snake's head turned inward to represent a disagreement with local government or support for civil liberties. It can be seen as a sign of rebellion against uh, government institutions, and you can commonly find this flag in your local gun stores. And sometimes, Christina Rogers' face mask, I believe she has one of those. Not today. I was hoping she was going to wear it today, because then I was going to go into points of why Christians shouldn't wear it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was about a month ago or two that I had this flag in my virtual cart while shop shopping on Amazon. After researching it, I uh, desired to hang it on my prominent flagpole out front. And as I went to press the proceed to checkout button, I thought to myself and began to ask myself the motivation behind me buying this flag. Now, while although I love the history behind this flag, I mean, this flag almost became the American flag. It was one of the first flags of, of America. And while I love the history behind it, I had to be honest with myself and, and admit that the reason of me wanting this flag was due mainly because of my frustration with the local government. And I got to thinking and asking myself, what would be the perception of my neighbors? Would it be, he must really love American history? I know the history behind that flag. Or would be seen as a sign of rebellion. So with this consideration, I emptied my virtual cart. Now, I want to say I take no issue with anybody having uh, the gas and flag. And, and uh, I, I love the flag. And I myself will one day probably own a flag because I love the history behind it. But not right now. Um, and I want to make clear that this sermon is not a political rant. Uh, the purpose of this pulpit here at this church will always be to exalt Christ and to proclaim the gospel. But that gospel penetrates every aspect of the believer's life. The gospel impacts the believer's relationship with family, spouses, friendship, neighbors, employees, employers, and even our own government. And there is no question that these things have been tested these last few months. And unfortunately, there has been many divisions. And as we face these testing times, as we believers should know how to conduct ourselves according to Scripture. And I believe that the text we're going to be looking at does just that. And I want to make clear that this sermon was not inspired by any person or persons in particular. If anything, this sermon, if it was to be inspired, is inspired by because of me. What I have experienced this last three months. And as me and the elders have delegated and, and gone back and forth is 
of how we should continue to operate at this church with all the government regulations. It was this verse, this text here, these verses and this text here that I kept coming back to. So let's look at our text here in Matthew chapter 17. We're going to begin in verse 24. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? A little bit of the backdrop, Capernaum was Peter's hometown. It's where he was from. Uh, Mark 1.29 makes this clear. And it acted as somewhat of our Lord's um, home base, kind of home away from home. Uh, he did a lot of his ministry there, and uh, he would often stay most likely with Peter. <clears throat> and uh, even in, in fact, Mark 2.1 calls uh, Capernaum and the house there Jesus' home. So it was very, very uh, familiar. He was, this was his home base, kind of, um, and did a lot of ministry there in Capernaum, uh, even though he was from Nazareth, which was 20 miles away. And here Peter is approached by the collectors of what is referred to as the two drachma tax. First point, the taxman will always find you. Two things you'll never escape, death and taxes. Peter's approach most likely due to him being a resident here of the land uh, and, and known by, by those there. And I believe that the other disciples probably most likely had withdrawn and found other places to stay at as though, as, because they probably all couldn't stay in, in Peter's home. <clears throat> The two drachma tax was an improved tax that the Romans allowed the Jewish religious leaders to collect for the operation of the Jerusalem temple. And is the reason why this is commonly thought of, as you see on the header of the text, the temple tax. Some of your translations will probably have that. Um, and this is verified through writings of Jewish historian Josephus and the Mishnah, which is a book of Jewish traditions. <clears throat> And the Greek rendering is de drachma, which just means two drachma, which equaled about two days' worth of wages for the common worker. <clears throat> um, it was equal to the Jewish currency of a half shekel or stater. Um, now, since there wasn't many minted coins that amounted to two drachma exactly, it was common for two Jewish men to go into the city gates and to pay this tax with one coin for the two of them. And most likely, like I said, the other disciples had, I mean, we get this from our text too, the other disciples had withdrawn maybe to other areas to find residence while Jesus and Peter remained together. This tax was not a Roman government tax, nor was it enforced by them, but the Jews were given certain privileges such as their own taxes. Um, as a dominant people, the Jewish people still enjoyed some of their own privileges, such as their own courts, their own laws, their own religion, and their own taxes. And this tax finds its origin in Exodus 30, 11 through 16, which reads, <clears throat> The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Each one is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, 
according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The, set, the shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord, everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall give no more, and the poor shall give no less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you should take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tents of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. This temple tax was to be collected about six weeks before Passover. So we know that this was probably within the last six months of Jesus' life and ministry. And there were some, and because this needed to be collected six weeks before Passover, the, these collectors would, would go out and, and, and stand by the city gates and um, make sure that everyone had, every Jewish person anyways, had paid this tax. Um, and these were not the same hated tax collectors that collected tax from Rome. Um, some scholars speculate that this was an attempt to uh, trap Jesus, just like we see in, I believe, Matthew 22, where they're asked if he pays uh, taxes, if we should pay taxes to Caesar. Um, and this may be the case, or perhaps they figured that since he claimed to be in the Messiah, he would consider himself exempt from such a tax. Um, I think this would probably be the basis of maybe where the religious leaders later um, got the idea to try to trap Jesus for the uh, tax for Caesar. But regardless, they go, to, they go to Peter as a resident. Does your, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And we have Peter's response in verse 25, and we'll look at 26 as well. He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Peter responds to this question with a confident yes. And, and some commentators suppose that Peter was being presumptuous or impulsive or, or misguided. And while Peter could have definitely been blamed for this during Jesus' ministry, the most likely cause for Peter just to plainly say yes is because this, or Peter had been with Jesus for the last two and a half years. This probably wasn't the first time that he had seen his Lord pay this tax. Whatever the case, Peter seems pretty confident that Jesus would uh, comply with this tax. Um, now, already knowing what was on his mind omnisciently and what was going on, Jesus speaks first, taking the opportunity to teach his disciple by asking a question in verse 25. This was a common teaching method back then where you would, as it is today, you would someone ask a rhetorical question or a question that has an obvious answer, or you would give parables, which was very common for our Lord to do. So Jesus takes this opportunity to teach his disciple, his disciple a lesson here. And we must not miss this. Uh, Jesus is not asking a question in order to make a point or just declare his liberties, but he's using the opportunity to teach Peter something here. Now, during this time, kings and emperors did not pay the taxes which they themselves uh, levied on their people. 
nor with any of their immediate family. And to suppose and insist upon a, a son or emperor or king to, to pay a tax that his father imposed upon the people would be an insult. And as we read in, in uh, chapter 30 of Exodus, this, this tax was to be paid to the Lord for the operation of the temple. Now, when we look at the very beginning of this chapter, what do we see? The transfiguration. And in that transfiguration moment, we hear the voice of God saying what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus had previously just been proclaimed as the son of God, of God most high, and in the same moment revealed his deity. Jesus himself called the temple his father's house, Luke 2.49, John 2.16, and declared himself greater than the temple, Matthew 12.6. And though Jesus was exempt from all taxes, if there was one that he should have been most exempt from, it would have been this tax. Peter answers with the obvious, and so Jesus confirms and implies that not only he, but all the sons of the king were exempt from such taxes. Romans 8.15 states, But you have received the spirit of adoptions of, as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now many of us would have loved if Matthew had in the chapter here. This would be many people reasoning for not paying taxes. Um, especially those taxes they feel as though they should not pay. And some may argue that this is not the same as paying civil taxes because the context of this tax is that of a religious obligation. And Jesus came to fill all religious obligation. Now, while this may be true, it is quickly put to bed when we read Matthew 22, 15 through 21, where our Lord is asked about paying taxes to Caesar. And what is his response? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God. When we look at Romans 13, verse 7, Paul says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. As I said before, this purpose behind this is uh, Jesus making this point was to teach his disciples something, not to make a point about his liberties and rights. And we can see this because he doesn't tell Peter first, go tell the collectors that, but we're going to still pay it. But first, Make it known to all. He doesn't stand on the table and say, I want everybody to know that I do not have to pay this tax. I have liberties. This is my father's house. He simply tells Peter, again, to teach him something. And this is something we ourselves may be guilty of at times, where we... We, even though we say we're going to apply, comply with something, we, we comply only after we've stated our views, only after we've stated our opinions, only after we've pridefully stated our rights. I know there's going to be a lot of us that are not going to like what I have to say today because I didn't like what I was studying because I was convicted of my own actions. But we must listen to the word of God. 
We may say, I'll comply, even though I think it's dumb. I'll do it, but first, I want to let you know how stupid it is. That's what I call prideful humiliation, which is an oxymoron, I know, but that's what it is. You know, we're willing to humble ourselves and submit to certain regulations, but only after we pridefully make our opinions known. Now, we are called to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you are to shine as lights in the world, Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Now, think about that for a second. I would say when it comes to some of the regulations that we have experienced, some of the political things that we've experienced this last few months, and this might be just because of who I surround myself with, but the ones that I commonly hear grumbling, complaining about it, are those of the church. Paul makes it absolutely clear that if you want to stand out as light in this dark world, act different. And that's a good point. Because when we insist upon our rights, when we're out there protesting and yelling and screaming about our liberties, who do we look like? Just turn on the news. You see them protesting. We look, we look like the world that gripes and moans and protests in order to get their way. And I, like I said, I am absolutely guilty of this and had to spend some time in confession and repentance of it. You know, just like a month ago, I was walking around Winco, proudly walking around while about 99% of the people there were wearing masks, and I proudly walked around maskless. Even making jokes on the phone to my wife, like, well, besides the uh, fever and flu-like conditions, I feel great. Hoping people would hear me and be like, oh. And I got these looks. And I just strutted. The disciple in our text, Peter, grasped this concept of the Christian duty as a citizen and writes in his epistle, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should not, or that you should put to silence the ignorant of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. But I hate Gavin Newsom. I don't like Trump. Notice that the text does not say, honor those whom you deem worthy. I relayed this verse to a a friend of mine who, um, he's a good friend of mine, but he and I are complete opposite when it comes to politics. Complete opposite, but we keep the peace. And he, with a passion, hates the president. And I told him, I said, well, you know, be that as it may, you as a Christian that you call yourself have to show him honor. He says, not, I don't have to show honor to those who are corrupt leaders. And I view him as a corrupt leader. 
My response is, do you understand who was the emperor at the time that Peter wrote this? Nero. And if you have any bit of, of Roman history, know anything about Nero, you will know that he was one of the cruelest, immoral people to ever be in power. In fact, the majority, I would say all of the 12 major Caesars during the first century um, were corrupt, immoral, perverted, and cruel. I don't care what your view of, of our president is. He was a saint compared to these emperors. A saint. And I don't mean that to uphold Trump. I'm just saying, when you look at the lives, and if you want to read, there's a book called The Twelve Caesars uh, by an ancient historian that talks in depth about the lives of these Caesars. It will shock you. Peter reiterates the duty of citizens, especially Christian citizens. And what is interesting here is that Peter says that our submission to the governing authorities will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, at this time, Christians were accused of very many weird things. Uh, they were accused of being cannibals because they ate somebody's flesh and drank someone's blood. They were considered of being sexually immoral because they had what they called love feast where they came together and shared things. Um, they were, and they were considered to be uh, lawless rebels because they, wouldn't, they had a king in whom they bowed to who wasn't Caesar. So these allegations were, were being poured out on Christians and Peter, congregation that he writes to in 1 Peter is, is being persecuted at this time. And, and being persecuted from both sides, from, from the religious Jewish people, from the Gentiles. And what Peter said is, is that by submitting yourself, you will put to silence the allegations of foolish people. Which is an interesting point. Because the world has no concept of God's morality. The world has no concept of what lust is, Right? As long as you don't act on it, it's no big deal. The world doesn't have a concept of what true murder is. If you hate someone, you commit murder in your heart. They have no concept of any of these things. The highest level of morality that the world knows is the law of the land. So when we as Christians do not follow that law, which is their highest standard, to them, how are we going to talk about a superior law? being obedient to a God who is of order. Make sense? This is what Peter was saying. By subjection to government authorities, they would silence those accusations. Our Lord here in the context, or in this text, not only implies that the tax is to be paid, but is to be paid willingly without argument. Why? Let's look at the next verse, verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. What was the motive behind it? Not to give an offense. 
When going through the gospel accounts, we can be sure of one thing. Jesus was not afraid of hurting people's feelings. He was not afraid of causing offense. Jesus cleansed the temple twice, calling those there a den of robbers, Matthew 21, 13, Mark 11, 17, Luke 19, 46. He even fashioned a whip and drove people out, turning over their tables, John 2, 15. He pronounced seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees, calling them hypocrites and dead man's bones and whitewashed tombs, Matthew 23, 1 through 36. And earlier in this very chapter, he calls those with him a faithless and twisted generation. In lamenting over Jerusalem, Jesus calls Herod a fox, which is a derogatory term, Luke 13, 32. The Apostle Paul, likewise, calls out those who shipwrecked their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander, in 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20. It is not that Jesus was concerned about causing offense, but he was concerned about causing unnecessary offense that would hinder the gospel. Now, there will be times when we as Christians will cause offenses. In fact, and this is justly so, uh, so, because the message of the gospel is an offense, Galatians 5.11, to those perishing especially. But we must not add to that offense by our conduct and actions. Oh, what damages could be avoided if we, the church, could only be reminded of these simple words? Lest we give offense. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on his passage, writes, quote, Our Lord's example in this case deserves the attention of all who profess and call themselves Christian. There is deep wisdom in those five words, lest we should offend. They teach us plainly that there are matters in which Christ's people ought to sink their own opinions and submit to requirements which they may not thoroughly approve. Rather than give an offense and hinder the gospel of Christ, God's rights undoubtedly we ought never give up, but we may sometimes safely give up our own. It may sound very fine and seem very heroic to be always standing out tenaciously for our rights, but it may be well doubted with such a passage as this, whether such tenacity is always wise and shows the mind of Christ. There are occasions when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist, end quote. How many bridges have you and I burned when it comes to talking about the gospel because we offended over something that has nothing to do with it? And maybe you have won some arguments. Maybe you have shown that your political view, candidate, or party is superior than others. What have you gained from that? What eternal value is that? And I'm not trying to downplay and say it's not important. But what have you sacrificed to do so? I very much doubt that Gavin Newsom is going to hear your rants, complaints, and protests. But you know who will? That cashier who's just doing her job by asking you to put on a mask or that business owner that's just trying to keep his business afloat to be and be compliant so that he can remain open. These are the people that we are trying and should be trying to reach for the gospel, but most likely will be very, the very ones that we are turning away by causing trouble fighting over our rights 
and liberties. We yell and scream and complain and rebel and insist upon our rights and talk about our freedoms in Christ, thinking that he is pleased with this. But if our freedoms, if our liberties get in the way of the gospel, then we ourselves should get rid of them faster and more willing than any government. The Apostle Paul demonstrated this in his first letter to the Corinthians when speaking of receiving the right he had as a minister of the gospel to ask for provisions. He surrendered this right, though, in order that he might not be accused of money being his motive. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.12, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. What obstacles are we placing and insisting upon our rights and freedoms. What reputation do we have? What reputation do we want? I want to be known, do you want to be known as the free American or the humble, obedient servant of Christ? Paul later speaks about waiving his right even further for the sake of the gospel. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I, may, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I, that by all means I might save some. What was Paul's motive by in all this waving of rights and liberties? Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. Paul understood the surpassing eternal importance of the gospel over his temporal situation and rights. And may it never be of us who call in the name of Christ to risk or jeopardize the message of that which is eternal fighting over that which is temporary. If there was one disciple that needed to be taught this lesson, it was Peter. Peter, who told Jesus that he refused to let him be killed, Matthew 16, 22, and was willing to fight for him and prove this by cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant in John 18, 10. And what did Jesus, how did he respond to him? He says, Peter, put your sword away. Put it back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my father had prepared for me? Jesus is basically telling Peter, this is not how I'm going to bring my kingdom in. It is not by force. It is not by rebellion. It is not by physically fighting, but submitting. This is how I'm going to bring my kingdom in, Peter. And this is what the Jews had such a hard time with Jesus being Messiah. Because that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted an insurrectionist. They wanted someone to lead the revolt, to lead the rebellion against Rome. They wanted their physical liberation, the here and now. They wanted a conquering lion, not a sacrificial lamb. The fact that Jesus was going to die is something that all the Jewish people could not take.
The first century church also struggled with how to respond to this newfound freedom that they had in Christ. And when the runaway slave Onesimus encountered Paul and became a believer, Paul encouraged him to what? Return to his master. Return back to your bondages. And pleads with his master, Philemon, to graciously receive him back. Not just as a servant, but as his brother. This is recorded in the book of Philemon, verses 8 through 19. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul encourages a slave to what? Remain in the conditions in which they were called. Unless, of course, they could earn their freedom legitimately. But they were to honor God in the condition that they were called, 1 Corinthians 7.20. Wives are encouraged to honor God in their marriages to their unbelieving spouses and continue in that marriage and honor God in it to be liked to their spouses. Paul's point is that Christians should be examples to wherever they're called. In whatever situation they are in, Christians should strive to be the model employees, Model employers, model spouses, parents, children, and yes, even citizens. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with advocating for equality or justice, but the most moralistic just laws will be of no avail when they depend on immoral, unregenerate people to carry them out. We have more laws in this country than ever before. How's that working out for us? Feel like things are getting better? This is why Jesus and the whole New Testament does not deal directly with social issues like slavery or racism or equality or, or corrupt politics. It's not that these things are not important, but all social issues and problems stem from corrupt unregenerate, sinful hearts, and the only antidote to that is the gospel. And I can think of no better example than the tax collector Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, 1-10, Jesus dines with this despised tax collector. And it's funny is that nowhere in the text did Jesus, does the text say that Jesus sat down with them, showed him why, collecting taxes for Rome is wrong, why he shouldn't work for a corrupt Roman government, why collecting taxes from his own people and pocketing some of that was wrong. It talks of nothing. Simply that Zacchaeus has an encounter with Jesus. And what is his response? He gives half of his riches to the poor, and he says, anyone that I have wronged, I will pay back fourfold. You want to see everlasting change? Then proclaim the gospel. And be an example to all those around you so as not to place a hindrance to that message. So Peter's told that the money for this tax would be provided by this miraculous means. And it's very interesting that that. Jesus tells Peter to use a hook here instead of the common gill net, which was um, the common way of fishing at this time. You would drop the net and drag it and pick up the fish. Um, uh, a hook was not a 
common way of fishing. But it was most likely that it was due to Peter needing only to catch one particular fish that the Lord would send to his hook. Now, I didn't realize when studying this text how much kind of debate there was over the text. And I have to admit, um, when reading Scripture, this text does seem to be a little out of place. It doesn't really seem to, to fit the narrative. And a lot of commentators, is mostly liberal, but really suspect that uh, this text was added in later, that it wasn't part of Matthew's original gospel. And, and uh, I disagree, but it's to that point that a lot of commentators um, say that this, this probably wasn't, you know, it just seems so out of place and it doesn't flow with the narrative. And it was a strange miracle because Jesus does his miracle only for Peter. It doesn't show to anyone else to pay for something for himself and Peter. Um, it, it's really unlike any other miracle. Um, and, and when studying some of the Gnostic versions of, of uh, the early years of, of Jesus, you know, which is not true, but they had some weird stuff. You know, Jesus, as a little child, pushed a kid off the, the top uh, roof just to raise him from the dead, and he would make, um, you know, toy pigeons come to life, and just weird things as a child that, you know, this Gnosticism and all these weird things they, they made up of, of Jesus after the fact. Um, and some say that this, this kind of fits like that. This is kind of a, an odd miracle that Jesus performs here. Um, many scholars, um, men that I absolutely respect, uh, like John MacArthur, suggest that this act was done for the sole purpose of backing up his claim that he was, in fact, the Son of God by produce, producing such a miracle to Peter. And although I, I don't disagree with that, and this certainly does that, we know that... Um, you know, it definitely does show that he is the Son of God, that he is authority um, and, and God in flesh. But we know that it was Peter that confessed Jesus as the Son of God in just the previous chapter, verse, or chapter 16, verses 13 20. And Peter was one of the three that was on the Mount of Transfiguration in, earlier in this very chapter and saw Jesus' deity with his own eyes, peeled back. So I don't believe Peter was necessarily questioning or struggling with Jesus' sonship to the Father at this time. He heard the voice. We know from the text that Jesus was using this as an opportunity to teach Peter something here. So what was it that Peter and all the apostles were struggling with? We hit it on a little earlier in chapter 16. Verses 21 23, he says, From this time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And from here, Peter rebukes, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus rebukes Peter and, and tells him to get, get behind him, Satan. From chapter 17, we see Jesus, again, revealing his, his glory. We see him healing uh, or, or rebuking a demon that nobody else could rebuke, showing his authority over the spiritual world. 
And then right, right before this text here, right above it, there's two verses that Matthew puts in there and then slides in there. And he says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Matthew, any student of Scripture will tell you that Matthew is very, very uh, smart and particular about what and how he writes. He, he's an expositor. He uses hermeneutics. He knows the Old Testament. And he purposely places things throughout his whole gospel for a purpose, to paint a picture. And I believe that these texts were inserted here because Matthew is trying to convey something, something that our Lord was trying to teach Peter at this time. So, what was it that the apostles and Peter especially struggled with? That the Messiah, who just revealed to Peter his glory and deity, would allow himself to be killed. This was a hard pill to swallow. They struggled with what Jesus' ultimate act of humility and submission would be. Now, by Jesus performing this miracle with the fish, he's displaying his power and ultimate authority over all creation, is he not? But at the same time, he is also displaying his submission and humility by using this miracle to pay a tax he doesn't owe. Now, can you think of any other act of our Lord's that displays his ultimate authority as well as ultimate humility? Turn over to John chapter 10 real quick. John chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 17b. John chapter 10, 17b, says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And hear this, I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. From chapter 7, um, Sorry. Um, from this, we see that Jesus' display of his absolute authority is in humbly laying down his life and taking it up again. For what? For paying a price he doesn't know. For what? The atonement of his people. Now, going back to our text, what was the temple tax for? Do we remember? Let's look back again at this origin in Exodus 30. He says, When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tenth of meaning that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Jesus displays a mirac miraculous act of his authority 
to humbly pay a price he doesn't owe for Peter on a tax that is a direct correlation with atonement. We can almost imagine Peter with Jesus over dinner discussing his death and, and Peter asking, Lord, I, I don't get it. You are divine. You are God in flesh. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. I saw your glory. I saw you peel back the, the flesh and I saw your glory. You have, I, you commanded a demon and no one else commanded. You have absolute authority over the spiritual. You commanded a fish to come to me that had, that had coins. You have omniscience. You have authority over all living creatures. So why, why, Lord, are you going to allow yourself to be subjected to such a humiliating death? And we can see Jesus gently reminding Peter of the fish, saying, just as I displayed my authority over creation to humbly pay a tax I didn't owe, not for me, but for you, in order to make atonement for you. So I will use that same authority to humbly lay down my life for the sake of the gospel to make atonement for you, Peter, and those after you. Application, closing. For any here today that may not know the Lord and have yet to submit to his lordship and authority, do not mistake his meekness for weakness. Nor, as Romans 2, 4 says, presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There will be a day when his authority will be made known to all, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. May today be the day of salvation for you, for you know not tomorrow what tomorrow will bring. For us believers, we may have had our feathers ruffled a bit, may feel uh, convicted, I hope so. I was. But for us believers, let us model our Lord here and examine ourselves this morning and repent of any rebellion or unnecessary hindrances or offenses that our actions may be causing in furthering the gospel. Is our rebellion out of pious zeal or stubborn pride? Let us ask ourselves, do these laws, regulations hinder the gospel? Will it do any good for the cause of Christ if we refuse to comply to them? Are you, am I, willing to wear a mask, forfeit eating out at our favorite restaurants, have Disneyland remain closed, have our rights forfeited in the name of peace for the sake of the gospel, lest we offend? Going back to Romans 13, 1 through 2, Paul states, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. You understand what, what Paul is saying here is to resist our governing authorities is to resist those that God has sovereignly placed over us. Yes, it pains me to say it, 
But Gavin Newsom is in office because God sovereignly appointed him. You see, we submit to our governing authorities because they are established by God. We do not bow the knee to the government, but we bow the knee to him who commands us. We submit not because they are our ultimate authority, but because this is. We humbly submit for the sake of the gospel because Christ, who is our example first, and foremost, humbly submitted, and though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. How much more should we be willing to relinquish our rights and liberties for the sake of the gospel? Is his servant greater than his master? Make no mistake, I, I do realize the irony of, of me preaching this sermon as the governing officials have said that indoor churches should not meet. When we, the elders and Phil, and we have discussed this and, and has felt as though we would be disobeying God by not meeting, by not singing praises to him. And make no mistake, there will come a day when the laws of man will conflict with the laws of God. And when that day comes, myself, Phil, Bruce, will be on the front line saying, just as Peter and the apostles did in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. But until that day, let us do, as Romans 14, 19 tells us, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Amen?